I was in fifth grade, and I had stayed home from school sick. My mom took all of my siblings to school, and then she went to the pharmacy. I was in my room, in bed, looking out the window. I heard a strange noise, something like bagpipes playing. The noise got louder and louder, and then the door to my room opens, and this thing comes into my room. It was made out of what looked like static or lightning bolts in the shape of a kid's body, but with no face. It then seemed to hop or skip into my room, stood at the foot of my bed, and then it went back out the door. I stared at the door, and then this dark figure that I can only compare to the image of the Grim Reaper ran past the door. As I stared at the door in shock, I saw a hand stick out with a black robe on its arm. As I'm staring at the hand reaching into the doorway, I pulled my blankets over my head in terror. ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivagant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Jay, and I am joined today by my esteemed fellows, Nick Ferrant and Rory Wicks. Hey. Hi. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivagant. Demon of Brownsville Road details the battles between a Pittsburgh family and a demonic force that has taken over their home. The story's narrator, devout Christian Bob Cranmer, grew up near the house and spent his childhood fixated on it. In the midst of a rising political career, Bob purchased the house and moved his family in. He notes that the previous owners seemed keen to unload it, accepting a low-balled offer. Once moved in, the Cranmers start to realize why. Over a period of many years, the Cranmer family is assaulted both mentally and physically by an unearthly force. Objects are moved or broken, foul smells fill the air, and sleep paralysis and nightmares become commonplace. Family members are scratched, shoved, or knocked down the steep stairs. Both residents of the house and visitors see frightening figures in black robes or faceless creatures made of static. Blood and amniotic fluid drools down their walls or puddles on the floor. Their relationships and sanity are tested as the demon drives wedges between them, seeking to divide and conquer. Bob's marriage and his relationship to his children are reduced to tatters. His son's mental states degrade until hospitalization is required and Bob's political career ends with a whimper. Well deserved. Unable to drive the creature out himself and with no help to be found from Baptist preachers, Bob turns to the Catholic Church. Like something out of a paranormal heist movie, the crack team is assembled. Three bickering priests, a mysterious intuitive, a group of plucky college-age ghost chasers, and a rotating cast of helpful neighbors band together to fight the forces of darkness. The demon reveals itself to be Sothi, a terrible creature that feasts upon child sacrifices, and she won't be chased out easily. As the fight rages on through lulls and peaks, the disturbing truth comes to light. The house is a centuries-old history of blood. 
In settler times, the land was the site of a massacre. A woman and her three daughters were butchered on the property. During the house's construction, a jilted and obsessive worker cursed the owner's wife out of a jealous rage. Finally, long before Bob was born, the house on Brownsville Road served as the discreet office for a back alley abortionist. The mysterious Dr. M used dirty tools, was careless and often drunk, and many of his patients did not survive. Did God send the spirit of a murdered child back to Earth to undo Sothi's wicked works? Did a man of exceptional faith and a team of exceptionally courageous strangers simply stumble upon it, no divine mission needed? Or is it all one big hoax to advertise a bed and breakfast? I mean, can't it be more than one of those things at the same time? I mean, I think it's definitely possible that there really was a demon tormenting this house. And after Bob and those priests kicked it out, he was like, hey, you know what would be a lucrative business idea? See, I don't think the priest had anything to do with it. <laughs> uh, but I could see that, you know, after casting out evil, I, too, want eggs. I mean, we all want eggs, including Sothi, who had squatter's rights. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the demon of Brownsville Road. This was fun. I yeah. liked this a it, lot, actually. I, I I really enjoyed the book um, from a uh, literary perspective. I mean, I, it, I thought it was quite fun. Yeah, Erica Manfred wrote it very well. <laughs> uh, that's the co-author. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, I actually looked into her a little bit, and as far as I can tell, she's just a pretty competent writer. She writes in a lot of different genres, mostly like a lot of. It seems like a lot of magazines and stuff like that. I didn't look too deep. So if there's any, you know, big Manfred fans out there, don't come for me. Or do, because that would be hilarious. <laughs> we would be thrilled you're listening don't, to our podcast. Yeah. yeah. Don't encourage to, it. <laughs> to be in the company of the esteemed Erica Manfred, co-author of the Demon of Brownsville Road, is very exciting. She also writes about Jewish vampires and divorce. I mean, those are definitely related. Though. Does she write about Jewish vampires getting divorced? I, I don't know. I don't I haven't read anything else that she's been involved in, although very clearly one thing I did notice was the book is written entirely from Bob Kramer's perspective in the first person. So yep. I, I really do think this was sort of a situation where Bob wrote this book and it took him about 10 years. Uh, I was watching a uh, talk he did. Hold on for the Bethel Park speaker series today. And in that, he was talking about he wrote this book in three months, and then he spent 10 years trying to get it published. And I have this weird suspicion that it was I wrote a book, and then I spent a long time trying to get it published. And then I finally found someone who could write and told them, asked them to do a heavy edit. I I mean, that's that's how biography-style books like this do typically get written, is somebody vomits everything that happened to them into what is essentially a trauma journal and they're like this is a book and their co-author is like no but i can make it one yeah i mean i i mean like i said i thought it was very well written yeah. i thought it was uh succinct it got to the point it needed to get to yeah i there were a couple chapters which dragged predominantly uh i remember there was four or five chapters straight where basically it was just bob walking through rooms screaming at the air but it there there were there were some points in the book yeah yeah it it definitely it dragged and he gave us so much um background information on that, his fucking political career <laughs> and, and not 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 even just that like yeah he did he gave us a lot of information about his political career but 
just in general, he just kind of like word vomited his life story through this or well, his family's life story through this book. Did you know that my parents were both as stubborn as I am and it ruined their marriage? Did you know that? Did you know that? You know, Mr. That's, Cranmer. That, that quote, though, does have well, we'll talk about that later. But that that's some that's some foreshadowing. That's a tool that will help us later. Uh, yeah. Oh, God. Uh so much of this episode is going to be us mocking Bob Cranmer, and I'm here for it. Here's the thing I will say. like, Do I like Bob Cranmer as a person? Probably not. No, we wouldn't get along, um, I don't think. But that said, I never got the feeling that he was like a willfully bad person. I, I just got the feeling that he was a pretty oblivious person. No, he's naive as fuck. Yeah. Like, this dude is like beyond naive. Yeah. He was so blind to everything that was happening around him. It's un- unbelievable. Okay, so do we want to get into discussion questions? Yep. So I've got five discussion questions for you, uh, for you people here today. Uh, we're going to start with the first one, which is one of my personal favorites. So if you aren't familiar with Catholicism and Catholic mysticism, this book is a lot. <laughs> uh, what? Is your your guys's familiarity with the mystic tradition, and did this book change your views on Catholicism or introduce you to some ideas that were kind of new to you? I mean, a lot of new ideas were introduced to me. Uh, the Passionists uh, was interesting. The fact that there are these kind of I don't know. It's it's like. They're like junior exorcists. They're allowed to go in and try to scream the demon away before we get to a full exorcism. Yeah, and yeah. I found that whole internal church hierarchy very fascinating. Um, what Nick is referring to specifically is the deliverance movement, who, as yeah. he said, they don't perform specific exorcisms, but they can basically show up and bother a demon. And sometimes the demon will leave. Um, but, and I didn't know really anything about you know Christian mysticism or uh, any of that. I, I mean, I've heard of it. And I understood it was roughly a form of magic that involved the Christian faith. And that was basically my rough framework. And I wouldn't say like the book didn't go into Christian mysticism per se, but obviously we see a lot of rituals in this, a lot of prayers that you won't hear every day in church or written out here um, in the book. And one thing I another thing I did find fascinating were the secret nuns. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, like Bob Cranmer, he <laughs> when he was looking for help, he was basically his Baptist minister after he told them all about these horrible things happening in his house. His Baptist minister basically put a hand on the show and was like, are you sure you're not just a bad father, Bob? <laughs> Which, uh, that well, yeah. is a bad father. Yeah, no, there is no question uh, that the, the man is a terrible father. <laughs> so anyway, well, Your I mean, son is dead. So he starts looking for help and he approaches this nearby nunnery. And they were like these secretive nuns who never left their nunnery because they were praying in there. And the only way you could communicate with them were through like messages and gifts that you put on this like hidden turnstile that you put through their doors like he would just start bringing them gifts and stuff uh that he got for christmas because when he was a uh, when he was this allegan county commissioner i think yeah county yeah for the pittsburgh's county or whatever yeah Yeah. Uh, he so while he was in that position people give him a lot of christmas gifts and he didn't want them so he'd just go and take him to the nunnery and eventually he showed up and one of the mysterious nuns had come out (laughs) and they got to have a nice talk and basically the whole time that like bob was dealing with the demon the nuns were apparently like just constantly praying for him so it was it was weird it was like he had this fan base in the background sending letters to god (laughs) like that we need ammo 
We're out of fuel. Come on. The war zone's over there. They were basically the dedicated team of uh, making his social media posts go viral so that yeah. God could see it and save him from Sothi, who had squatters rights. But to go back to your question, I, me personally, I, like, I think I learned some interesting things. What I, I learned more than anything is uh, that I have a very deep appreciation, not so much for maybe the theology or the dogma of the Catholic Church, but the mystery of it. They are one of the few religions out there that really, in my opinion, they have uh, captured that element that I think is fading from a lot of modern religions, which is the mystery of it all. I think in the modern age, we want to explain things too much. And they, the Catholic Church very much, no, nothing can be explained. If you need to fix something, you rely on God and our magic rituals that talk to him. Yeah, and all those ones they stole from other faiths, but that's not the point. Um <laughs> Uh, I am familiar with both Catholicism and Catholic mysticism. Um, not as familiar as you, uh, but I, I, I do have some knowledge of it, uh, having studied both, you know, Christianity very in depth, uh, through my life and different, uh, occult mysticisms throughout my life. I am familiar, like I said, I'm familiar with both. I wouldn't call myself any kind of like expert or professional uh, in those specifically um, because most of my time researching either Catholicism and or any kind of related mysticism was generally when I was looking for an escape from Christianity. So they they didn't always go hand in hand. But, yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely familiar with them. And my book there, the book itself didn't necessarily change my perspective of Catholicism. Because I expected the kind of reactions that we were getting from the first priest. Uh, which one was the first one? Tom? I, honestly, all the priest names kind of blended together. Right there. Uh, the three priests are Father Mike, Father Ed, and Father Ron. Ron whichever. Which one, which one was the which one was the passionist? Uh, I don't remember. Ron, Ron was the one that never left his office. Ron was the one that had the link to Connie. I, I think it was Mike. Yeah, I think yeah. Mike was the like the main boots on the ground one, right? Yes, yeah. Mike. Yeah. Yes, I remember now. Mike was the first one. Mike brought in Ed to help. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then they contacted Ron. Yeah, I, I, I definitely um like Mike, Father Mike's reactions and his, uh, like the way he handled it definitely felt like what I would expect from a uh from like a priest or whatever uh father the 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 one that never actually came to the house that was just interacting with their medium uh, yeah connie that one he he kind of blew my mind a little bit father ron yeah no yeah. father ron is it's fucking wild legitimately father ron and connie are my favorite parts of this book uh so for those obviously who have not read it Father Ron was a senior official in the Pittsburgh diocese uh, that was brought in on recommendation from the other fathers who had already or the priests who had already tried to deal with the situation. And basically, as we find out in one of the um, epilogues, he's basically not an exorcist. He is a coordinator of mm -hmm. exorcisms. He tries to determine if they need to happen and then he makes them happen. But he also has this mysterious connection to this Christian mystic uh, named Connie who keeps having these psychic visions about the Bob Cranmer house. And a lot of the tips and information that Father Ron feeds to Bob over the course of the book actually came from Connie. And I, I love that character, and I'm sure we're going to get into her later. But if you're oh, yeah. talking about Christian mysticism, that's that character. Yeah, I yeah. just I just thought of her as a medium, well, it, essentially. So – to like to take like an actual academic and anthropological perspective here for for those who don't know the actual 
the definition of Christian mysticism is a little wonky and vague because it can mean like three or four different things. The way the church internally defines uh, Christian mysticism is essentially a mystic is a member of the church who is in a much more direct communication with God. They don't necessarily communicate to God through prayers or through the normal methods by one by how one does that. They are in they are touched directly by God and they're kind of they live in a sort of constant harmony with God's light. And if that sounds weird and confusing, that's because it is. Um, in a more broader and practical sense, a Christian mystic is, as we described with Connie, who, as, as we described with Connie, who in the book uh, firmly describes herself as an intuitive, but that's political because Connie's insecure. Uh, <laughs> a Christian mystic is one who receives information directly by God in the forms of visions and sort of an ESP extrasensory perception kind of thing. Uh, you can see this in history in the mystic brides of Christ who were nuns who believed that they had visitations from angels and could perform miracles. Um, Christian mysticism can also just refer to people who are combining Christian theology with, uh, like Nick mentioned, just like standard, quote unquote, standard magical shit of like, you could make the argument that I'm a Christian mystic because I'm like, yeah, angels are a thing, but also Apollo is cool. And I read tarot cards and I don't think that's a sin. <laughs> I, now I'm curious about something, um, so that concept, it sounds like it's been with the church for a long while. These, these uh, yes. God touched people. Yes. How did the church determine the difference between a Christian mystic and like, you know, a witch? Do you go to church and recognize the authority of the pope? Then you're a Christian mystic. So they're the pope's witch team. Yes. Yeah. In a, in, in, in a way. Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, Wait, where's the Netflix special for that? Do you want to hear something horrifying? They actually, they, they actually during witch trials, that was literally the only way that they, during witch hunts, that they distinguished between an acceptable will worker and an unacceptable will worker. If you were going to church, recognizing the authority of the Pope and allegedly doing your thing, your things in the name of God and saying, my power comes from God, you were a Christian mystic. You were an herbalist. You were a midwife and you were actually completely safe from accusation accusations of witchcraft will workers that didn't fall in line or pissed off the local bishop too much witches burn them burn them all fascinating i i've never i don't know, I, I never really even knew about that aspect of the church but granted i you know i was never uh a catholic yeah I, i've been to a couple of catholic masses for christmas most modern catholics don't really know about it either i mean bob throughout the first like chunk of this book is very confused by what by father ron being able to know these things because father ron was keeping connie actually hidden he wasn't very upfront about his relationship with connie and the other priests were just telling bob like yeah we suspect he's a christian mystic it's fine and bob was kind of like what the fuck is that like what does that even mean yes i mean catholics they got the mystery down the gravitas mm -hmm. <laughs> that's how you keep the yeah it's how you keep the power you, you keep it as a secret school which actually by that argument though you can make the argument that the 
the church is a secret school. They have these magical rituals that they keep secret that they only and there's certain gifted people that they keep hidden and they only use them for certain things. It, it sounds very, you know, it sounds very much like an old school secret school. I mean, no, you're you're correct. I have a question or more of, I guess, like a statement slash question. Slash, I have something I would like to say. Yes, my love. Yes. Um. So I was I was thinking relatively deep, obviously, about this whole thing. And I, I had a thought because. Like, I believe, I guess, in a way, I believe like what you what you put out you know, it comes back, right? Yeah. So there's a part of me that wonders if part of the mistake that that Bob Kramer made throughout this, like when they, especially like when they started going whole ham on on the demon, um, you remember in the book they had the, the Passion of the Christ playing 24-7 and <laughs> then in one, another floor he was he had that evangelical radio station going all the time. Yep. So I wonder like I think <clears throat> like from a, a mysticism or like like looking at like the truth within the world whatever I think the passion may have done some benefit even though there is like a lot of dodgy you know whatever the 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 symbolism of the passion itself is very true to the story of jesus in 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 its way right jesus died for our sins and it's essentially just a snuff film yeah well the book is considered scripturally sound from what i could find yeah yeah yeah, the movie is yeah there there's a there's a couple of little things um like the it is finished on the cross we have no we we have no evidence or I think that they say that Jesus didn't actually say that, right? Yeah. Um, as near as we can tell, the most likely candidate for Jesus's final words upon the cross were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, and hear me out, and this could be my own personal bias coming in, but I think him choosing the evangelical station specifically actually worked against him. And the reason is because a lot of what... Those radio stations uh, will preach is wrong, like fundamentally by the faith that they claim to believe in is historically, factually, spiritually, it's incorrect. It's wrong. Yeah. And so I wonder if because he was playing the evangelical station that that was actually empowering the demon. And because that was at the time when he was trying to do a full frontal attack on, uh, you know, on the demon all the time, constant exorcism, blah, 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 blah. And one of the things that he's putting out into the world is preaching the wrong message. So actually an interesting point about that is so they're doing the prayers and the exorcisms and the demons basically basically it's like you know it's like warfare they're they're gaining rooms they're losing rooms right. uh sometimes they think well the demons in that room now we can't go in there um but once they got towards the end after the church finally sent out a real exorcist they did an exorcism and then they had mass in the basement i mean the basement was the last refuge of the demon it was the last place they had to banish it from and the basement was where the radio was that was playing right. the evangel- right. uh, evangelist station 24-7. So, you know, it could be a little bit interesting uh, fuel for your fire there. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that, you know, maybe it was down there just vibing. That That is that is that is completely fair. That is completely fair because part of the reason 
that the church justifies like uh, that very intricate hierarchy and that secrecism around its that secrecy around its rituals and the fact of like you need a trained exorcist, not just a priest, a trained exorcist to drive these things out is basically they're like they're very complicated and they're very dangerous. And it's like performing a heart transplant. You just you can't just go in there with confidence and expect to figure it out. You can't wing heart surgery you need a heart surgeon whereas evangelicals are like it's fine i know what i'm doing because i read the king james bible and it's like the king james bible is inaccurate no samantha they actually a lot of evangelicals read the new international version now they don't understand it (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's better than the lego bible is it though actually the lego bible is fairly scripturally accurate well, fuck me then, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, I would love to talk about Catholic mysticism all day and all night. Is, but, it, is uh, it Christian mysticism or Catholic mysticism? What's the right term? <sighs> this specifically is Catholic mysticism. Um, yeah, this is specifically Catholic mysticism. But the thing about just saying Christian mysticism is... Then you go into like specific denominations and sub denominations and a lot of like what Rory was mentioning, like a lot of the evangelicals are all mysticism because it's speaking in tongues and it's having visions and that weird belief that you can just baptize someone in like a lake. Uh, So real quick, baptize someone in a lake real quick aside. I actually found out something today. Uh, Apparently, uh, there's a portion of the UFO community that uh, there's a portion of the UFO community that actually believes they are incarnate aliens. They're from another planet. Their soul reincarnated as a human here. Delightful. And they're like this whole little sliver of crazy people. At least I, I hope they're crazy. I hope that's not the truth. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but there is also a sliver of the UFO population. I mean, not even a sliver. There's a good chunk of the right of the population, which are Q heads. You know, QAnon, they're really into uh, big supporters of Trump. And there is a very. Wait, you said of the UFO community? Yeah. I hate them. Wait, yeah, them specifically. I'm, yeah. I'm not their fan. Yeah. But uh, my point being, there is a weird overlap there because I found a, co- a whole group of people on Twitter that they're like, I am a Palladian from the planet Palladia. <laughs> I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I love Donald J. Trump. And it's and I'm just sitting there and all I can imagine is like fucking grays on their planet wearing their MAGA caps, waving their flags like which would be funny if they actually supported Trump, because then there were actual legal aliens voting in the election. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. I I, that I I wish I could say I was surprised by the the having the QAnon uh, supporters being like some of them being. you know, in, uh, involved in the, the 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 UFO community. I'm not I'm not necessarily surprised because that's the right kind of fringe, uh, like mindset that you need to be to be a QAnon supporter, right? Yeah. Once you've given into one conspiracy theory, it becomes a lot easier to give into all the other ones. Oh yeah, but you know the thing. I'm not. I I I you know there was when I was doing the the Let's Be Real here show. I spent a lot an obscene amount of time on QAnon uh, boards. Uh, reading what they had to say and all this other stuff. And I, let me tell you, 
uh, some of them, like they do legitimately believe that they have the same kind of oomph as like these priests and like that in here that they can do this. And they would literally post like page long, pages, long prayers um, that they, you know, with the implication that Donald J. Trump would become president of the United States again. And or he's, you know, the military is going to take over the government and like they're putting that shit out there. Well, I mean, God said no. Correct. <laughs> God answers every prayer, but sometimes the answer is no. I mean, to be fair, no, the voters said no. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we have gone violently off topic. Bring us home, Jay. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll 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 go back to making fun of evangelists later. Uh, okay. Um, I really hope my parents don't listen to this. <laughs> it's okay. I make fun of Catholics, too. I'm going to get it burned to a CD and like chuck it through their window tied to a brick. <laughs> now for the part Rory has been looking for looking forward to. Let's talk about Bob Cranmer and his family. I'll go first. Oh, shit. <laughs> I love you. So rip into pieces. Do it. Do it. Bob Cranmer is a terrible father, <laughs> as as we established slightly earlier. But let me let me elaborate just a little bit. OK. This dude blamed everything, and I mean everything, on this demon, down to the fact that he was blaming his wife spending money that they, quote unquote, didn't have. He blamed that on the demon. He blamed his son's bipolar disorder on the demon. He blamed everything on the demon. I think he intimated that his daughter getting pregnant out of wedlock yes, yep. may have been the doing but of Sothi the demon. Also, the fact that his kid liked metal music was an act of the Dark Lord living Co in his closet. Correct. And, ev and like, even if you want to take like him being interested in goth and metal music as <clears throat> like a, a rebellious sign, if you want to look at it that way, his response to it was the most triggering thing that he ever could have done for me. Like he was like his son clearly needed help, right? Because he was going through shit. He was very obviously depressed, violent, angry. He beat the shit out of Bob. And his response was, let's go talk to the priest. Let's go talk to a pastor. He's going to make everything okay. And let me tell you, from experience of that having happened with me when I was being rebellious, literally the worst idea, because you know what I, what, what I did back then? I said, fuck this. Fuck this. And I left. His response. And, and Okay. Let me back up. Because I was going to. Deep breaths. Yeah. No. I, You're like, safe. You don't live with those serenity people in, Serenity yeah. and rage out. <laughs> serenity and rage Bob out. Bob Cranmer can't hurt you. He runs <laughs> a bed and breakfast in Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. So he. Outside of outside of his just needlessly blaming everything on the demon, uh, if if let, let, putting on my tinfoil hat, if everything that you know that that happened was true and it all was actually the demon's fault, then why the fuck did he stay there for so long? The second, the second that it was invoking the psyche of my family, I don't care how obsessed I was with that house. He claims to be a family man. He claims to be the right wing conservative Reaganomics. I'm a khaki pants polo wearing white man that's proud of who I am. 
okay? Family man, that is who he claimed to be, when in truth, he was an absentee father. But if what he says is true, why the fuck didn't he move his family out of that house years before? Also, he readily admits to working late when he didn't have to. So he didn't have to be in the house with the demon. And he doesn't even go into the implications of like, so you just left your wife and your children there by themselves while you worked? It's like, they could have left. No, you had the car. So what's funny is, is that even, you know, that, that, that whole part where he's talking about working late, that's in the timeline after a CD levitated out of nowhere and shot at ballistic speed at his kid's head and almost hit him. Like fast enough where it would have done damage. The CD stuck in the drywall. That, that demon tried to murder Bobby. Yeah, yeah. He and repeatedly he paints himself throughout this book as this, uh, you know, this devout, great Christian trying to be a preacher. Repeatedly, you know, whatever. But not even once does he acknowledge that the obvious rebellion that his child was doing or that it was going through was anything other than the demon. It's 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 just infuriating to me because he thinks clearly in some way he thinks that he was doing everything right because he was being a father. He was the breadwinner. He was, you know, making the money uh, and supporting his family. And he bought this nice house for one hundred thousand dollars, by the way. He says it was a steal. But since he bought it in 1988, it's only its values only gone up to two hundred and fifty thousand. So it really wasn't that much of a steal. How do I know that? You know. You work in mortgages? Yeah. Why are you looking at me like that's like, I don't, I don't know, like a license to kill? I, I don't know. But it, like, the, the I guess I relate. I, I guess I, I just felt so bad for Bobby, like repeatedly throughout the whole book, because I, I like I went through I felt so much of what he was feeling, you know, that he, he was obviously feeling rejected. He was obviously feeling neglected. Uh, and he spent how many years years with undiagnosed bipolar you know and then even when it what when he did finally get diagnosed and was medicated bob almost seemed like that was the demon's fault too Uh, yeah yeah like the the priest even that bob was talking to initially was like and and this is this is the catholic priest not the baptist preacher that refused to help them with the haunting because as much as they speak in tongues, Baptists kind of don't want to deal with the fact that ghosts and demons exist because it complicates things. But do, I do Baptists believe in or speak in tongues? I thought they didn't believe in the feeling of filling of the Holy Spirit. Oh, they might not. I that's like the the I know Pentecostals. Obviously, they believe in the filling okay. of the Holy Spirit and all that. Actually, yeah, you're correct. Baptists are very bare bones, yeah, yeah, and yeah. they tend to not do things like that. Which Southern Baptist, <laughs> whole nother level. Y'all, my specific form of theology that I got educated in is in Christian cultural differences across denominations. And that's difficult because there's fucking 5,000 of them and they all say everyone else is going to hell. It's so upsetting and weird. But yeah, even the priest, the Catholic priest that Bob was initially talking to was saying like, okay, yeah, we're going to deal with the demon, but the family's in therapy, right? The family's seeing therapists and psychiatrists, right? And Bob was like, I mean, yeah, we let the boys go to them witch doctors. We let them. Christ. We let them people stuff my precious baby boys full of pills that'll make them gay. But all right. Were their sons frogs? <laughs> 
turning the frogs gay. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. no, I, I got it. I got it. So, Bob, uh, um, I have one more thing that I want to say. Okay, okay, Go ahead. okay. I hate how he treated his wife. I felt so bad for Lisa. Yeah. I have a whole spiel about Lisa after Nick is done. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. Okay, so I'm going to say flat out, to a large degree, I agree with Rory here. Um, and that's mar- largely just because reading between the lines, Bob spent an inordinate amount of time walking through rooms and screaming at this demon instead of dealing with his disintegrating family. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that, that to me is a bit unforgivable, um, especially yep. because the priest went the priest went out of the way to saying, you need to fill this home with love and light, even saying, fuck your wife as much as you can, because you need to be showing this demon that you're not going to give in. And instead, he spent every day up in this these rooms yelling at it and that's i mean i part, part maybe because he was in the military he was in army intelligence and so that's the mentality he knew um but i will say this about bob is when i first finished the book i sent out a tweet saying that you know this book wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be it could have easily become a catholic action movie and it didn't and that's great and i and that's because i was impressed by some of the things that i maybe we'll talk about later uh, largely just that it wasn't a very Hollywood haunting. It was a no, very yeah, it, yeah. it was actually quite understated compared to yeah. what I was preparing for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that made it feel a little more real, especially yeah. how proactive the ba- protracted the battle was. But the uh, thing I realized upon listening to that Bethel Park speaker series lecture from him is that he absolutely believed it was an action movie. Um, he, <laughs> he goes on saying thing. He started off basically saying things like he wanted this book to bring the truth about good and evil to the world and partially it's because of those damn kids they don't know good and evil anymore and you know with their liberalism and their bisexuality he didn't actually say any of that last part but the point being um bob very clearly wanted this book to create a message saying that yes god is real demons are real the devil is real and you need to respect it and but here's the thing because he came out and said that it throws a weird light over everything in this book because now I, I mean, obviously anytime you're reading anything, you know that there is the author's bias in there somewhere. They, yeah. even if even the most, you know, cold facts reporter in the world, there will be some bias in their work because we're human. Yeah. Um, But it, it just, it rubbed me the wrong way because it very much kind of felt like a, well, now this is done and I get to go on my hero tour. I am spreading the light of God. I am God's chosen sword. And really, if you look at over the whole the course of the book, um, when he was young, one day, I would think he, he got picked up basically because he was hitchhiking and they, the people who picked him up didn't say a word to him, just kind of quietly stared at him, made him feel creeped out. And then they dropped him off close to home, but they dropped him off right outside of what would one day be his home, the the haunted house, the house on Brownsville Road. Um. And ever since then, this whole idea of I was meant to be here, yep. this was yep. my task, yep. this is my battle, yep. God chose me for this. Yep. I think all of that went to his head to such a degree that that became his identity during the course of this and at the cost of his family. Yeah, no, hundred. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you there. That's actually a thought that I had. And, but this is, in my opinion, a huge problem with uh, evangelical Christianity specifically because they do this the whole thing like you were meant to do something bigger than what you are. You were meant to you have to do this and you you like I've had like hundreds, hundreds of people laying hands on me telling me 
that I was meant to do something humongous, you know, in my life that I was meant to preach to millions that I was going to be this, you know, world changer. Like literally I've had like from the ages of 13 to 18 for five years of my life. That is what I heard. Like down to my my mom telling me the same thing over and over again, that she would get visions that I was meant for something huge. Do you know how 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 that weighs on the psyche? It gives it gives you a complex. It oh, yeah. sets you up to give you a complex and it 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 feeds into a very particular type of fragile ego that is incredibly common in men like Bob Cranmer. Yeah. I I have written down in my notes that he strikes me as somebody who is filled with a profound emptiness. Mm-hmm. He is a man that is hunting for that fire, for that destiny, for the thing that he'll do that will make him feel less empty and hollow and broken inside. Yep. And that wasn't, you know, having a loyal wife and for a accomplished talented unique children no no it was going to be in preaching and then it was going to be in politics and finally 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 connie valenti gave him the magic words that he'd been looking for this house was god's plan for you and that's not even necessarily me knocking connie that's me telling bob cranmer stop looking for your destiny in every random ink blot the universe drops at your feet and focus on your fucking family you dickhead I mean, and, and, and even that, like, you, you're right, like 100%. Like, he spent the majority of his career trying to find something to fill that void that he felt was necessary or that he felt he deserved or was meant to have. And even from a political standpoint, he didn't he didn't do a very good job because his first act as like a politician was saying that he would get a new grocery store in that town. Uh, Brown, not Brownsville. Uh, Brentwood. Brentwood. Yeah. And uh, he didn't. He failed. He did not get a new grocery store. Instead, he created a 501c3 nonprofit that worked with the local government to essentially gentrify the place, which he probably made a fortune off of. I didn't dig into the company because I didn't want to. Yeah. Okay. Also, no, so, he has been repeatedly accused of and sued for firing people for their political beliefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, one yeah. one thing I did want to point out regarding that, because you were talking about his kind of career path being starting to want to be a politician and then he, or starting to be wanted, he wanted to be a preacher growing up and then eventually decided, you know what? No, I'm going to be a politician. And I really resonated that with that because it's really close to how I wanted to be a veterinarian. But instead, I started torturing animals with a blowtorch. Yeah. Yeah, that's the same thing. I mean, that was kind of the joke. You ruined it. Yeah. Is that what you've been doing in the garage? <sighs> it's so hard to be evil with you, too. You stay away from my dog and my cat. I wouldn't touch your dog or your cat. They're too fatty. What the fuck did you just say? <laughs> it's impolite to comment on a lady's weight. You, uh, you leave them alone. Our <laughs> dog and our cat are very fat, though. Buffy is not fat anymore. That's a good point. Buffy's lost a lot of weight since Teddy started harassing her day in and day out. Teddy Murphy's 25 pounds now. 23 pounds. 23 pounds now. But here's the problem with that. He's a cat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) But he's huge. My my pet Snickers only weighs 15 pounds. Sure, he's a gerbil, but what are you going to (laughs) do? 
listen, listen. Get it, get if Snickers it. is still alive while weighing 15 pounds as a gerbil, clearly God has a destiny for Snickers. <laughs> Perhaps a grander one than he had for Bob Cranmer. That's, that's honestly not that hard. Well, I mean, here's the thing is like at the end of the day, I will say this about Bob Cranmer and maybe this is my final take. Do I like him as a person? No. Do I think he was a bad father? Probably. I wasn't there, so I can't say for sure. I will say, however, that um, I think he's a little full of himself and that's just based off hearing him talk and looking at how he wrote it. And I also think that uh, the army didn't at, let me quit but because here's the they thing. said they lose to the Soviets without me. Bob Cranmer, yeah. me. I mean, here's the thing, like putting on my tinfoil cap here. At the end of the day, though, he did banish it. Yes. He, he did successfully yeah. Yeah, yeah. over months. He had the willpower and the determination to stick in it when, quite frankly, like you said, fuck, I'd be gone. No, yeah. Fuck. It, no, I like, would have lost. moment yeah. my family was threatened. I'm not sticking in this anymore. Like, yeah. I, I mean, which and he made the decision to. uh put his family up on the sacrificial altar so he could banish evil. And you know what? It's a choice. Yeah, he got a bed and <laughs> breakfast out of it. He got a bed and breakfast and a new wife who's too young for him. Bye, Lisa. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So those who don't know, um, after the events of the book, Bob and Lisa did unfortunately split up. We don't know if for sure, but it does seem to be connected or timeline wise, it lines up with somehow being related to the death um, of one of their David sons. Cram- um, yeah, David young- Cramer, the oldest son, um, unfortunately and tragically took his own life in 2016. Which is like after reading the book, just fucking mind blowing. Like it, you almost you can almost see the build well, there, I mean, you know. I mean, Bob pointed out repeatedly that David seemed to be the one handling it best. And he was right. he couldn't wait to get old enough that he could join in on the prayers. And right. he was always making jokes and saying, I'll face the demon. And really, I don't know. Like, here's the thing is if he was he did serve on Iraq. He was a Marine. Uh, David was. And he was put on some new powerful antidepressants by the VA hospital right before he died. And Bob actually sued the VA because of this, uh, thinking that there was something wrong. With, I think he was a lawsuit. Either that or he just appeared in an article. Um, but either way, the, yes, David's death could not in any way be con- tied to the demon. But if I wanted to read this with the tinfoil hat on and fill the gaps with whatever I wanted, I, I mean, you could easily see say that, well, his combative nature, his joking nature when he was young, that was uh, a defense mechanism because maybe the demon was focused on him and Bob never knew. Uh, because David covered it up and that trauma built up. And as he got older, it happened. Now, that's it. I, I'm not going to say that that, you know, that that's the case. I wasn't oh, there. I don't sure. know. Obviously, David's death is tragic. Our hearts go out to the family, everyone. Yeah. But and, and it would all be speculation. Yeah. Yeah, it would all be speculation. <sighs> I feel bad for the entire oh, Cranmer f- family. Sure. They. Oh, yeah. They 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 went through. They went through hell. They, yeah, they went through an extended period of bullshit. And honestly, out of all of them, I really, really hope Bobby's OK. Like, yeah, and, and I'll say this. I even do feel bad for Bob in that. Yeah, this was a shit situation you that ended up in your life and you had to deal with it. And yes, you might have. He didn't handle it as well as we might have hoped he would, uh, especially regarding his family. But. No one deserves to live in to have your new home be demonically infested. If you want to take it at like, except maybe like Dahmer. At, if you want to take it at the value of like, he did what he set out to do. You know, he believed that he would. This was his mission via you know what Connie said. He believed that this was his mission and he accomplished it. The 
sacrifices that were made along the way, him losing his family, like you said, this was just part of what ha- what has to happen. Like Job, he was he was tested, he was tried, he accomplished one goal, but he wasn't able to keep together everything else. And that's on like I want to feel bad for him, but the honest to God truth is that's on him. Yeah. And that's that's completely fair assessment um, to, to to clarify the part about uh, about Bob's destiny is uh, Connie, Connie Valenti, the, the the Catholic intuitive who she uh, she says, I talk to God. I talk to God and he shows me little visions of the past, the present and the future. And the church is like, yeah, we, ch- we checked her out. It's fine. It's cool. She's on level. Anyway, uh, she told Bob at one point of just like, yeah, you were one of the babies that was aborted in that house and you came back. God had you reincarnate to return to the house. And Bob said, doesn't that contradict Catholic doctrine? And Father Ron was like, yeah, a lot of the shit she says contradicts Catholic doctrine, but it comes from God. So what does the Pope know, I guess? Because Catholic mysticism. Well, and I got to say that whole exchange is my favorite in the book is because she brings up that Bob is the reincarnated soul of one of the babies who was forcibly aborted within the house. Um, and it, it's Rory's face. You guys. I, I know, but here's the thing is like the priest, his re- father, Ron's reaction to it shocked the hell out of me. He's like, yeah, it contradicts Catholic faith. Just move on. And it's just, <laughs> it, it boggled the mind because it made me just realize that, yeah, no, there are levels of the priesthood that have whole new truths that they believe that we don't know about. And that's, that's just how it is. Like John Keel before them, the Catholic priests are like, look, you can't tell the lay people the whole truth. They make stupid decisions about it. You tell them reincarnation's a thing. And they're like, so we have to be Hindus? It's like, no. You mean I can just keep shooting myself till I end up born rich? Yeah. <gasps> here's the here here's the thing. To, to, to nobody's surprise, it turns out the Catholic Church has been lying to us the whole time. <gasps> I know. <laughs> I know. So, so we're going to move on to the third discussion question. We've only was, gotten through two of you guys. That was good. I, I really enjoyed that last one. That No, it was good. I, we, we couldn't not talk about Bob Cranmer and Fuck his family man. that he mistreated. I didn't, even, I didn't even go too deep into his political career. I know. I know. So the previous owners of what is now called the Brownsville Roadhouse claim Bob fabricated this story while Bob claims they're avoiding legal percussion repercussions. Uh, Bob, Bob thinks that uh, they will be sued if they admit the new, they knew the house was haunted. Um, do we believe the Wagners or do we believe the, the Cranmers? So I, I just want to, I, I, sorry, I just want to address one thing that you, that you said. Um, you said uh, that they're they're avoiding legal repercussions. Yeah, from Bob, because that mother, that fucking capitalist is gonna sue the fuck out of them if they admitted to Bob it. Bob Cranmer is an avid litigator. He loves to sue people. Yeah, sorry. Go go ahead. Go ahead. I just I had to get that. I had to say that. Well, like okay. So if I have my believer cap on and I'm saying yes, these events happened as they were. I could see a couple options here. Uh, one being that the demon was asleep during that period. You know, it's a paranormal phenomenon often goes into periods of hibernation for long periods. We've seen that uh, tons of cases. And it was even talked about in the book. Yeah. The other option there would be that they were lying because I don't know if it's true in, uh, in this state, the state that's happened, which was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Yeah. I know maps. Um, no, you don't. Yeah. Know you have the sense of direction of a 
I don't know, like a dead moose. <laughs> I was going to make a sound for whatever you said, but I can't figure out what a dead moose would sound like, so I'm just going to move on. <sighs> That's dying. I, I think it's a coming moose. Same thing. God uh, damn it. <laughs> so I don't know what the st- laws are like in Bob's state. However, in several states, there are actual laws on the books which state that you can be found liable if you sell a haunted home but don't disclose the haunting. So I... So I, I'd be curious to see uh, what the laws are around that town or that area. Let's call a judge in Pennsylvania and ask them. Now, now that said, peeling off my tinfoil cap and putting on my Sherlock Holmesian uh, skeptic hat here. I mean, Bob, like I said, Bob clearly had an agenda with this book. Um, he clearly had an idea of what he wanted to do. He was very clear in the uh, Bethel series. Not yeah, Bethel Park Speaker Series. He was very clear in that, that he wanted this book to have a very clear message, a very clear theme, and he was defensive of it as he kept trying to get it published. Uh, he actually turned down a couple of publishers because he was they wanted him to, you know, maybe scrub out some of the Catholic elements or things like that. And he was wanted to keep this being a very clear testament about good and evil, about uh, the victory, the primacy of good over evil in these scenarios, the power of the church, of God. And so the skeptic hat on i could very easily see how bob gets into this place he's a i mean not a failed politician he did get elected to a couple posts but he's not a he was never a popular politician um he was hated well, in brentwood he he did say that he was considered a hero of the local african american community because he stood up for a uh, a black man who was killed by the police and he actually had a pretty cool quote there said that when he was talking to uh, the rest of the city council, said this was a human being, somebody's son, somebody's brother, and now he's dead. And you talk about it like it's a dog hit by a car in the street. I'm not worried about insurance liability. I'm worried about these cops. That said, that comes from right, Bob. and that was his main goal when he was getting uh, when he was going into politics at that specific time was to root out corruption in the police force. That was his primary goal. So this was just leverage for him. Yeah. Bob Cranmer has a white savior complex. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I will say this. I did try to look into it, uh, into Philadelphia newspapers and things like that to try to see if I could find any evidence that Bob is considered an African-American hero. Uh, we're not from that area. We've never I've never been to Pittsburgh, I don't think. So uh, please email us if uh, if you have any insight into that situation, because I, I, I did don't know. read a couple um, of uh, newspaper articles uh, from around that time and. Most of it was like there was no like Bob Cranmer, you know, hero of African-Americans like, you know, nothing, nothing like like there was nothing obvious, like not nothing like it. Dude, it was the fucking like 90s and early, early 2000s. That shit totally would have been a headline and you know it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, especially especially because it's weird that, you know, it's funny. We read this now because the killing that happened that caused that. I mean, he it sounds a lot like George Floyd. Yeah. It's pretty much the yeah. same thing. A cop pulled the guy over, pulled him out of the car, and then kneeled on his neck till he died. And it made me sick. Like, that's the scariest part of the book right there. Um, okay. What the fuck was even the question? Do we believe the previous owners of the house, or do we believe the Cranmers? Okay, so sorry, let me bring it home here. Okay. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I know that's a cop-out answer, but I mean – reading these books just taking these books as they are we don't get a lot of uh deferring opinions outside of those which we find through google um but that said 
I think that uh, I have my own theories on what could have happened there, kind of if I take this book and put it into the John Keel paradigm. But uh, we'll get to that. I'll get to that a little later. I don't want to leap into that right just yet. So October 31st, 2014, by the way, um, the there is uh, the Supreme Court ruled uh, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that they do not have to disclose paranormal events uh, for their house. OK. Oh, OK. Neat. Wait, the Supreme Court ruled the on that? Pennsylvania. Uh, Supreme OK. Court. Jesus Christ. Especially in 2014, that means RBG would have still been alive and uh, and been on the like our Ruth Bader Ginsburg just trying to rule over a fucking ghost case is like there's poltergeist activity happening around her and she's just not giving a fuck. She's just like, I will have order in my car. RBG wouldn't have held up to some ghost bullshit in her courtroom. (laughs) (laughs) Banging that gavel and just being like, settle down. I will get Father Ryan. (laughs) I I can't get this image out of my head, though, because it's like imagine the, the fucking Supreme Court of the United States. They sit down like, all right, what's on the docket today? All right, well, first out the gate, we're going to decide if abortion is still going to be a thing. Second out of the gate, we're going to decide if we should allow the government to execute brown people. And third out the gate, are ghosts a problem? I'm really excited for that one. It's after lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I love my after lunch ghost problems. No, don't decide that after lunch. They're going to be sleepy. They're not gonna make good, they're not gonna make good decisions. The topics on the docket went way downhill when Kavanaugh got a seat. You're not wrong though. Fucking Okay, we're not a political we podcast. We are not. Um so I personally I personally lean more towards believing the Cranmers for a lot of the reasons that Nick said of just like the demon might have been asleep also According to Bob, there were hints that the parents, that the married couple they bought the house from were aware that something funky was going on. They mentioned that they were like, yeah, we don't get along with the people we bought the house from because there were some things they neglected to tell us. According to Bob, that is something that was mentioned to him during the sale of the house. Um, Additionally, uh, those two people... The married couple who I, again, I believe are called the Joyces in reality. Uh, In the book, they're called the McHenrys. Do you see why this is confusing? Um, That is their their grown-up children are the ones saying, there was nothing happening in that house, not ever. It was totally normal that our parents let us have mass in the living room. It's not. That's not normal. (laughs) That's not a thing that happens. And it's typically done to bless a place because there's a demon spoiling the milk and turning off your alarm clock. (laughs) And so I I think that I believe the Cranmer slightly more. I think the activity was probably significantly less while the Joyce's lived there. And I think the parents were just able to kind of mask it from the children. And we're just kind of trying to pretend like, no, it's an old house. We just, and we have to have mass in it sometimes to keep cockroaches away. Ultimately. Um, I, I agree. I think that the, I think that they knew more than they let on. And my biggest, the biggest thing that convinces me is that hidden room, the one that was blocked off since 1910 or 1920 or whatever it was. It was but in the closet, right? Yeah, yeah, in yeah. the closet. But Bob, according according to the book, was able to like pull that shit off the top of his head. Like when they were like, is there any place that we haven't looked? He was like, oh, yeah, there's that one place we've never looked. that's creepy and blocked off. Also, also, uh, I... 
I watched an episode of a TV show called A Haunting about the uh, about the the demon of Brownsville Road, and they mentioned a couple of things in the TV show that for some reason didn't make it to into the book, um, like the fact that at one point on the property. Bob found a box full of crucifixes and rosaries that had been buried like somewhere in the house. And he was like, what the fuck is this? And he apparently called the Joyce's and they were like, put it back. And he's like, what do you mean? They were like, put it back exactly where you found it. Don't touch it again. It needs to be there. And he was like, okay. Uh, That's not fucking suspicious (laughs) at all. And and then he did it. I mean, uh, um, uh, one last comment I want to make on this is even if I don't believe Bob, even if I say, well, Bob clearly had an agenda, so I can't trust his narrative. It's hard not to trust his family. Yeah. And that's the thing is that we it's not just Bob. The kids saw stuff. The kids have there are quotes from the kids in the book. There are quotes from Lisa in the book. And all of them, as far as I can tell, have never disavowed the story. Um, yeah, that uh, the paragraphs that I read at the opening of this episode, that is a, an experience that Bobby had in the house when he was six years old and left home alone. And apparently to this day, uh, remembering the experience causes him significant distress. So I I actually I want to make a quick comment about that experience uh, because I don't know if we're going to have another question to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, So Bobby saw a couple entities there. He saw like the staticky thing that was jumping around. He saw the Grim Reaper. And what was not in the section you covered was the light bulb man. Yes. Uh, So what Bobby saw was like the, the Reaper was reaching for him. And then this this uh, glowing kind of celestial figure appeared kind of like T-posing over him, yes. protecting him. And it looked like it was a person if their body was a light bulb. That's the way it was described. Yeah. And what I find found so infuriating, and this is because obviously I'm, I come from a literature background. I have degrees in uh, English from Central Michigan University, and that's where I'm very much built around storytelling and how you structure narratives and so I I was reading it like that. And now I ca- I saw this this T-posing light bulb man and I was like this thing is going to be so fucking important by the end of this book. And then it <laughs> yeah, never yeah. came up again. Yeah. yeah. I was so angry. It's like Spider-Man <laughs> on Family Guy. Everyone gets one. Just like it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's so and it's like one it's one per family, not one per family member. It was like, "Nah, that Grim Reaper it was going to take Bob's soul down to the eternal pit." And I was like, "That's mean. That's just just a bot. He's just a bot. <laughs> stopped it, and then I fucked off to well, Celestial like, Las Vegas. The, the closest we get is a couple times, like Father Connie through Father Ron says, "Well, there is a beneficial spirit in your house that's trying to help you." And I was just sitting there the whole time thinking, "Any minute now, light bulb man." Anyway, uh, yeah, it, allegedly the Virgin Mary would occasionally just go superhero landing into the house and just start kicking Sothi's ass for a few hours, which is like, guys, I, I stand the Virgin Mary. <laughs> I do completely and utterly. And um, the idea, the idea of just this little, just this little Jewish teenage mother just comes padding into the house, humming to herself and just starts beating Sothi with a broom while trailing the scent of roses with her everywhere to announce her presence is one of the funniest things that I have ever thought about. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I did. I did like that. The whole weird thing about smells, the demon smelled like sulfur and, there were roses whenever Mary was present. It was it was interesting. Um, it, it, and again, the one thing not to go back to the, the Catholic mysticism conversation, but the thing that kept hitting me over and over again is like, oh, that's weird. That sounds a lot like what I've seen, what I've seen people describe in 
X other ritual, X other faith, X other, you know, magic incantation someone does, these weird smells, these weird lights, these weird knocks. I was just sitting there, I was like, God, I don't want to be John Keel, but I feel like you guys are kicking me down a hole here. There, there, there's some uh, there's some odd similarities. I'll get there. I have yeah. a thing. Oh, I'm sure you do. All right. Uh, are we ready to move on to the fourth discussion question? Yeah, I am. Excellent. Towards the end of the book, Cranmer and Mike discuss evil. They blame the demonic for everything from drive-by shootings to the fucking Holocaust. What do we think of that? Okay. So this is actually, I think, in my opinion, one of the most interesting I guess you call it an occult concept that they bring up in the book. And it's this idea of kind of the transmission of evil. Uh, the way they describe it is saying, OK, so we have this house, right? The house on Brownsville Road. Uh, there was the Native American massacre that happened. A family was wiped out by a local indigenous tribe. Uh, and then we had a long series of well, the curse that went on the land. And then we had all of the various deaths that happened when it was an impromptu abortion clinic, uh, as well as. What at least I read it, I might have misread this, but what I would assume would be rapes or assaults that happened there from the doctor assaulting these poor women. Yeah. Um, Dr. M sucked. Yeah, no, he sucked. Uh, and just, I guess, to like piggyback on it just real quick, there is other documented evidence of the of that doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also he supposedly haunts the house down the street. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, um. The point being, when they're talking about it, they talk about evil like it's a stone tossed into a lake. And the idea being that if you get enough evil in one place, it ripples outward. Like, uh, so the house would be our rock. We throw that into a placid lake and the rippling going outward, what they start to kind of think about, and I guess this ties into why he talked about his political career, is a lot of the time when he was the county commissioner, he was quote unquote, dedicated to fighting what he deemed to be corruption, police for corruption, uh, connections to supposedly the mob and illegal gambling in town. And these are things that he was trying to fight against. And it was an interesting way of tying the esoteric part of the narrative to the political part of the narrative in that what if everything that's wrong in this town, all the weird corruption, because I mean, it was weird that the mob had illegal gambling activity in this small town of Brentwood. Right. It, it seemed very strange because when I looked it up, the population wasn't even that big then. Yes, it was near Pittsburgh, and it would make sense that it might be a place mobsters might have their home to keep their wife and children. But it, it just seemed a little weird. So this it's, whole idea- it's not uncommon for uh, high criminal activity to be to to take place in these smaller towns, especially of the I don't want to say this, but it's true. Higher caliber criminals. Because it's easier to hide in plain sight when you're in a like a more rural white neighborhood. It's also easier to convince the police to just go along with what you're doing if you only have to bribe 50 of them instead of 2,000. Exactly. And you didn't even have to do that at the end of the day when you're just buddies with the police chief. Right. Yeah. So anyway, the, I, I did find that idea very interesting. And I'd be very curious to try to... Uh, like look into areas where there are is a lot of violent crime, especially around small towns, like look for the very violent small towns and see if there is any location towards the center of that town where a lot of bad stuff went down. And I'd just be curious to see if there's any kind of correlation there that actually supports that idea. Um, that said, I, I think it's a fascinating concept. I, I can't say if I believe it or not. Um, but they, he does definitely, I think, go a little far when he says, yes. And then the evil was also responsible for the Nazis. And this I'm going to build on uh, again through that Bethel series talk I, I, I listened to of him. Uh, he talked about how 
Well, people just don't do that. That's why it has to be demons who influence the Nazis, because you don't take an advanced, industrialized, polite society and turn them into killers that quickly. And the fact is, you do. Right. We, we've yeah. seen that again and again, is that ideas, especially violent ideas, propaganda, they spread like wildfire. It's like a social disease. And we as humans are very susceptible to it. And I think that uh, I think that Bob's insistence that it must all be demons is one. It's I mean, it's not scripturally sound <laughs> because it, it ignores the free will aspect. But the other uh, the, the other side of it is it feels a bit like a defense mechanism for Bob to handle the parts of human nature that he can't rectify because he any kind of evil. He seems to be relating just to demons. Demons make us do bad things. And that's why bad things happen. And there is no, I guess, room for just shitty people. Yeah. And I I agree with, like, essentially, I agree with your assessment. That's kind of what I wrote down, too. <clears throat> I don't think it was, I don't think by any means it was all demons uh, or, or anything like that. I I know it's more complicated than that because, you know, I've, I've dealt with this kind of shit, not to the level of the Brownsville Road, but, like, I've, whatever, moving on. Um, I think it's more complicated than that. Like, I, I don't doubt that, you know, there was some kind of demonic activity in the home. I don't think for any means or by any means that there wasn't anything that happened. I just don't think it affected everything like Bob Cram, uh, like he thinks it does, like he thinks it did. I, I think there was a lot more people involved. I think I think a lot of the things that he blamed on the demon, there's a good chance that some of it was just like Bobby kind of being a a rebellious douchebag like for example the football picture that kept being found in the middle thrown in the middle of the room it well noted no uh or bob made it made a point to mention that bobby hated that photo so you've got this rebellious kid who's into metal music and goth now and so it's not surprising that maybe every time he before he left for school or whatever, that he decided to fucking toss that picture into the middle of the room because he knew it was fuck with his dad. So actually, interesting point to build off of that. Um, there is a theory regarding poltergeist activities that you'll you'll see often out in the paranormal world that uh, poltergeist activity might not be due to any spirit or ghost or anything like that, but it is a manifestation of turbulent psychic energy that specifically comes out of youth around the time of their of their uh, puberty, and it's usually young girls. But I mean, in theory, what if it was Bobby? Right. What, what if the, the yeah. demon was Bobby's adolescent rage that was manifesting in a psychic space because he had no other outlet for it? So the picture that he hates is the one flying off the wall. Uh, you know, it he's the one it, fist it, fighting his father. He's the one. He was in the blue room when a lot of the activity started. I mean, that that's very I mean, that's very probable. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it isn't that the demon was a manifestation of that rage, but rather was attracted to it. And. Uh, was awoken by that, it. That's kind of what I was wondering. It's just like maybe, maybe the house wasn't haunted before the Cranmers moved in, but because of its long history, it was vulnerable to hauntings. And then you, you, this distressed family moves in, and like, um, and just like you said, like it might just have been attracted to Bobby and charlie because those two were the focus of a lot of the demon's rage was if it and if it couldn't 
If it couldn't fuck with Bobby, it would fuck with Charlie. And if it couldn't fuck with Bobby or Charlie, then it would fuck with Bob or Lisa. But it really liked fucking with Bobby. Yeah. And I think a big part of that was because of his sensitivity, because of, you know, him being, I don't want to say mentally ill, but at the same time, because he was mentally ill, he was more susceptible to that kind of manipulation. And that's a theory that has been around since ancient Greece is the idea that people who are what we what we call mentally ill or mentally unsound, whatever you you want to call it, are more susceptible to seeing past the veil. Um, that's that weirdly enough, that shows up in Catholic mysticism as well of like mentally ill or developmentally disabled nuns have a much higher rate of becoming mystic brides of Christ. So, OK, this is just a thought, but come with me for it. OK. OK, so Bobby got really into metal music, started wearing a lot of black clothing. Right. And we think of the demon, supposedly who the demon was, which was Sethi, which was specifically Bob when I was way to indicate it's a female demon. Yes. So Bobby is this young kid, lonely. He's in, in the, growing up in this pretty strict looking household, uh, trying to figure out who he is. His dad isn't understanding the fashion choices he's making. What are the chances that he saw the demon and was just trying to attract a weird goth girlfriend? He had a goth girlfriend. Yeah. Her name was Becky. Yeah, but yeah. maybe he wanted to sleep with Sefi. Maybe he wanted a three-way with Becky and Sefi. Somewhere out there, there's some poor girl named Becky listening to this, and she's mortified. Or excited. That's true. They are listening to us. Mm -hmm. Don't blame the Holocaust on demons. Is the <laughs> general, um, just take away yeah. that I want to deal with here. Like, okay, there is evil in the world perpetrated by humans. And if you notice that demons tend to pop up around there, it's not the demons doing it. Remember, kids, demons are diseases. They go where they can spread. It's not the other way around. Don't blame the Holocaust on demons, Bob Cranmer. Now you're an anti-Semite on top of all of the rest of this. What is uh, the next question? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, last week, we discussed John Keel and high strangeness. Um, <laughs> there are certainly elements of that here. So how does that perspective inform this story? And to get us kicked off, Nick Ferentz going to explain to all of you lovely listeners what the fuck synchronicity is. Okay, so... Oh, that's a good point. I got to go over that. Okay, so synchronous, synchronicity, uh, it was actually an idea invented by Carl Jung, and he was talking about largely the patterns that we recognize in the everyday world, seemingly meaningless coincidences, things like, uh, well, I'm between two jobs right now. One of them is at Costco and one of them is at Walmart. I got to figure out which one I'm going to pick up. While walking down the street, a Walmart bag flew on a wind and smacked me in the face. And so I took that as a reason to take the Walmart job over the Costco job, even though it's a really bad idea. Um, but the point is, it's, it's meaningful coincidences that our brain attributes meaning to. And that's what Young talked about this. Well, why Young talked about it. Um not well, besides the fact that Jung was very into mysticism and esoterica, but we're going to be reading a biography on him later. Um, yes. Now, in terms of John Keel, in terms of the paranormal, you'll often hear synchronicity uh, being attributed to those 
ultra terrestrials that Keel talked about, specifically in that it's sort of a way that the universe communicates with us or lets you know that you're on a particular path, or maybe it's the ultra terrestrials doing it. We don't know. So it's a lot of people who follow uh, occult paths and things like that. They tend to look for those meaningful coincidences as a guideposts on their own journey of spiritual development. So they might say, well, I only ever met my wife because I followed this synchronicity and this synchronicity that got me to the subway to meet her. And that's how I know we were destined to be together. Truth could easily be that, you know, there, there is no such thing as soulmates and you could have married any one of 74 women in the city who would have had you, but we don't know. But anyway, so that's what a synchronicity is. Um, and that's particularly important. We talk about the, the, uh, Brownsville Road case because there were some weird uh, almost either faded events or uh, syncretic events that did occur Uh, specifically when he was a kid uh, he got a ride from a passing car and rather than taking him home they dropped him off in front of the house which he did not urge them to do they just chose it completely randomly yeah and, and there was a couple other things like that where the house seemed to be destined in his future and he did not seem to understand the uh, symbolism like of how that being like a synchronicity in any way other than it being a center point of his uh, like he he was just like I always wanted this house you know he he grew up on a street near the house and he was from a young age obsessed with it to the point where his parents and his siblings commented on it within the narrative of like oh you finally bought your house and he's like yes it's my house it's always been my house <laughs> Okay, so with all that in mind, though, I, I, I want to look at this book through the lens of, of John Keel. Okay. Uh, and his ultra-terrestrial theory. And really, it's, it's very interesting when you look at it from that perspective because there's a lot of very strange correlations that pop up. Uh, for starters, the biggest one that pops into my head is the old woman on the bus who talked to him. Uh, so he was riding on a bus and an older woman uh, looked over at him and basically told him that God told her to tell him that he had great purpose. And you know, he thought this was a life affirming moment. He thought this was something great. And all I could think about was Mr. Apple that he is, he is now getting a confirmation of his beliefs through an intermediary that's in contact with some extra dimensional force, just like John Keel with Mr. Apple. So it's there was some very strange (laughs) correlation there. And that got me thinking about the whole situation. So the previous residents said they they didn't have any activity in the house. Uh, True or not, let's assume for the moment that they didn't. Let's say in John Keel's world, they wouldn't have because there was no expectation of there being something in the house. And what I mean by that is you get (laughs) you get Bob coming into this place. The previous owners are acting pretty cagey. They're acting a little strange. And he comes from a very set Christian belief system. And not only that, a military belief system, a place where and not just military, military intelligence and like his job was uh, intelligence training and psychological warfare. Those are his words. And so he has all this going into his head of of what he's going to expect from the world, what he thinks of the world. And then he goes into this house and maybe there was something there that responded to that may or maybe the non people responded to that expectation to create this demonic force because he comes in there. uh, You know, he has been engaged in psychological warfare operations. He has been engaged in gaslighting populations, presumably. And what does the demon do? It it does the same thing to him. It it takes his game and it turns it back on him. And 
the more I read it, the more I thought, well, if it isn't demons, it's a non-people. Those that's the only real option here. It's John Keel's non-people, and they are taking that belief that he has entered the situation with, and they are giving him evidence for it, and they are letting it get settled so that he doesn't question, you know, what's actually going on well, here. It's like you said uh, last on the last episode to John Keel. There is no difference between a demon and any other like non-people kind mm-hmm. uh, kind of deal. A demon is an angel, is a fair folk, is a right. alien, is a Sasquatch. Now, I I just want to put it out there. Um, I do not believe that they are all the same thing. Sure, you know, I I think that there are similarities between everything. Obviously, it's hard to deny that, but I do I I do not think that like every non-ent or every you know supernatural entity out there is effectively just whatever john keel's idea of a non-people is oh it i i don't disagree i mean nailing down my own beliefs is a little hard um i like to say that i don't believe anything i entertain everything yeah yeah. but but what i mean by that is i think it's really important when you're engaging in any of these books that we're gonna be talking about on this podcast or any paranormal television shows even the really stupid ones is take a deep breath and just put on your believer cap and say for the next half hour, hour, however long, I'm going to believe whatever they present to me. Yeah. And th- the reason is, is one, it keeps you more open. There are so many times where we are, we are as a people, as a species, we, pr- we tend to just shut down when we encounter something we don't understand or doesn't jive with how we expect the world to be. And that, that limits growth. And I'm not saying everything is real. God knows there are so many frauds and hucksters and sham artists out there. Uh, that are trying to make a buck off people's misery and and shame on them. They're disgusting. But that said, if (laughs) again, if Bob Cranmer was telling the truth and him and his family actually went through serious pain, I'm not going to call him a fraud on the case that he's right. Right. Like nobody deserves that. We're all people. People deserve to be able. People deserve to be heard. They don't might not deserve our money. And what I mean by that is, you know, don't get taken in, which is why after things like this, I tend to do research into how has this been validated? How has this been tested? And usually at the end of the day, it's there is no way to disprove this. There's no way to prove this. All we have is their testimony. So it really comes down to do you trust these people? And I mean, here, like I said, I, I'm not sure I trust Bob, but I, I certainly don't distrust his family. They seem to have genuinely gone through a harrowing experience. Yeah. Um well, there's a lot of similarities between what they've said and you know what's in the book. And there's a lot of similarities to what, you know, they've said and other accounts of similar activity, you know. So I, I, I agree. Ultimately, I don't, I think something happened. I don't think that we'll ever know the full truth of it all because I'm sure that there are aspects in the book that have been embellished or have been held back or changed in one way or another to make the story better because ultimately Bob Kramer was a uh, striving minister slash politician slash intelligent agent or intelligence agent. I doubt he was that great of a writer. Oh, and I am not saying that he's not. I'm just saying this book was very well done. Yeah, no, it. I will say this. If I'm just putting on my literary hat here, very well written, 
I thought the descriptions, uh, a lot of his descriptions of the paranormal occurrences actually made them scarier than they really were. And what I mean by that is he could, was able to add a lot of importance to relatively small things. Like there's a ch- in the closet, uh, one of his hall, well, the hall closet, there was a light on a pull switch. And every day when he opened that up, the chain would have been looped around one of the screws holding the light in. And I don't know why, because it's such a small thing, but the way that he repeatedly uh, described it and the way that, you know, he goes through the process of them testing it, it, it I did get this kind of growing dread regarding just a, a pull chain. So, I mean, it was well written and I, I – don't know which of the authors I have to thank for that. I suspect Erica Manfred did a lot to clean up Bob's draft, and that's really what happened, like I said earlier. But um, one of the more chilling moments that I encountered was when he was uh, using his like his special, the, the black rosary that he would use every night before he went to sleep to try and um, to try and set a good atmosphere to keep the demon from doing shit at night. And one time in the middle of him saying the rosary, it literally broke apart in his hand and like not just in two, like every bead disconnected from every other bead. And as he was looking at it, he was like the links were unopened. I had to pry open the links to put it back together. And that because of this book being so grounded in reality, you can take moments like that or like the pull chain or like anything else. And you can sincerely you, you sit there and you think, if this happened to me. Right now in the kitchen, how badly would I start freaking out? I, I would shit myself, and I, I'm not being facetious here. I would fill my pants. Yeah, no, I would be. I would. I would freak out. There, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. Especially going off of even just basic demonology within Catholic lore, um, a demon being able to casually destroy a rosary while a man of faith is actively holding and praying over it is actually not considered an easy thing for them to do and basically most demonology sources would conclude it's like that was Sothi flexing that was Sothi reminding everyone in the house that the fact that the Cranmers weren't dead was because she was still playing her game I mean and leading up to the final exorcism she certainly uh, started getting more aggressive she started trying to push them down the stairs Uh, repeatedly going after his wife she started physically manifesting in front of visitors to the house instead of just the family which she had never done before she walked fully formed out of a closet taunted a priest and then walked back in uh one thing i just want to point out and this i this again i don't know why it struck me as john keel because it felt like a game was when they had the blood tested they found what it was fungal spores and skin cells yeah it's like and water and where the hell does that come from for one but two i i don't know it it very much felt like a oh you're gonna try to apply science to this oh well skin that's all you get it's liquid skin hey you know the fungal spores make me think star trek discovery right now so i'm thinking maybe they were trying to go off or trying to create some kind of spore drive Sophie the, the demon was yeah. trying to create a spore drive yeah. and the Cranmers just interrupted her vitally important work that was going to save the Federation. Correct. I keep telling you, their eviction of Sophie from that house was entirely illegal. Land back. Land back. That does not apply to demons. <laughs> uh, okay, so I will say one thing, actually, that just occurred to me. If I if I have my... All right, so this is Native what... Americans it, are not demons. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, no, it was a joke. Okay, so here's this point. Uh, to fuck me up. <laughs> 
as usual. Okay, no. So if I have my skeptic hat on, right? And this is one of those situations where the skeptical explanation is almost so difficult and absurd that it's just easier to think it was a demon. Uh, but okay, so we had these this leaking coming out of the walls. This reddish fluid that had a lot of fungal spores in it. What if like they just legit had walls full of black mold that started to bleed or weep through the walls? They were inhaling it and just tripping balls and seeing demons. It is very possible. Actually, the the age of the house, the uh the the era that they were living in, the time the timeline, how the how old the house was, absolutely probable that uh there that the, the attic specifically was potentially just riddled with black mold because i mean uh, there was we weren't great at and we still aren't great at finding it when we need to um a lot of the uh <clears throat> the tests that we have to look for mold and stuff like that give us false positives and false negatives all the time um the issue is that that's not how black mold presents itself fair I did have written in my notes several times, have we checked the blue room for strange mold? But the reason I didn't bring that up more is because it's like, it's a little condescending of me to assume that nobody has checked the house for mold with all of this shit going well, and on. Depending on, like, I, I don't know the laws of 1988, but <clears throat> when he's buying the house, uh, an inspector has to come in, right? And they're going to get an appraiser and they're going to get an inspector to come in. And one of the things that the house inspectors typically test for is mold. But like I just said, we get, you know, we get false positives, false negatives all the time with with these kind of tests. So, I mean, take take it how you how you take it however you want, I guess. You know, okay. So this doesn't explain the the blood or the ambiotic fluid or anything, but. Another thing that occurs to me, because uh, you were talking about, we don't know, you know, this is the right ha- time of age for the house to have black mold and things like that. Uh, when I was listening to the Bethel series spot uh, talk, Bob said a couple things that weren't in the book. And one of those was the state of the house when they actually got it. Apparently, there was almost no insulation. And for that reason, there was kerosene heaters in almost every room. Uh, he have, and also two tons of coal that had been left abandoned in the basement, which is why he installed the second coal heater so they wouldn't have to burn kerosene. Uh, and then he started burning the coal. And I thought, I don't know, I was thinking, well, it's an older house. A lot of the crown molding apparently had fallen away. There was a lot of work he needed to do to the place. It, The mold theory does sound compelling. But the again, the only thing is, Mold, mold, moldy hallucinations only take you so far. They don't take you to amniotic fluid on the floor and levitating CDs. Typically, black mold's not going to make you trip balls like that. Okay, so some other kind of mold, right? Well, even most, most, most molds that grow naturally in the house in your in your house aren't going to make you trip balls like that. Fiction has lied to me. Also, mold can't <laughs> wrap a pole chain around a light every single day for thirty years. Right. I there's there that we I mean we we could try and debunk this till we're dead in the ground. Well, we we won't sitting yeah. here. We won't uh, yeah. like unless we wanted to go into Bob's house and dose him up with some sodium pentothal, tie him to a chair, make him talk. Like I there and really even then it's his experience and we. We're not in a, and with any of these books, any of these books, because we're going to read some ones that we're going to read some books from some people that um, are, I'm going to say, 
uh, funly kooky. Um, Less and, than reputable. And But the fact of the matter is, while we're reading them, it, it's their perspective, and we have to take it at that face value. Uh, because at the end of the day, that's all we're going to have is their words on the matter and whatever extra research we did. But, you know, we're here for the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm... Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think mold is the cause of the demonic haunting. And I think if there is mold, I think the demon put it there. I think the demon put it there to trick science. And I also agree with you, Nick. The the I I think it would be hysterical if it turns out that the that the the composition of the fake blood was just Sothi fucking with them. Can you imagine the roller coaster of emotions that Bob and his family were going through? Of like, we've tested it; it's not blood. Oh, thank God! It's moldy skin cells. I'm sorry. It's what? Yeah, so that's weirdly yeah, worse. Yeah, it's so what? much. Yeah. It, it, here's the thing: is it's the one the skin cells yeah, is that's what's the part, me. Yeah, and because my first thought was, oh, whose are they? Let's yeah, find yeah, out. Yeah, but, yeah. but I mean, I'm a mess. Is there a corpse in the wall? Oh, what if it was? I mean, it could be. Yeah. What if it was bloated, leaking corpses in the wall? I mean, that would explain the fungus because of the mold and the awful smell permeating the house. And yeah. it would explain where the amniotic fluid was coming from because, um, Connie Valenti did say that she was like, yeah, he would perform abortions that were late term enough that there were remains left. And sometimes he would burn the remains in the furnace and other times he would hide them somewhere on the property. Are there little premature baby corpses hidden in the walls of the Brownsville Roadhouse? Clearly, I mean, maybe (laughs) clearly we need to rent some rooms there, be very discreet about it and under cover of night bust open every single wall. Yeah, I feel like I mean, if if this is what we go to prison for, I'm okay with that. I am not. (laughs) I'll trip you and run. God damn it, Nick. You'll 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 trip Jay and run and then trip and fall down the stairs. Nick, I can't and somehow they'll still catch Rory first. Oh yeah, guaranteed. They'll be like that fucking criminal (laughs) with the blue hair. I can't go to prison. I'm a vain pretty boy. They'll eat me alive. (laughs) Get that fucker over there with the Welsh knees. Get that twink too. No. Only I get to call me that. <laughs> Can you imagine if we go to the Brownsville Roadhouse and Sothi commits a hate crime against me? <laughs> Turns out Sothi's a homophobe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, good times. So that was, so that, was that it? Yeah, that's the last of my discussion questions. And that was the demon of Brownsville Road. I, I liked it. I had fun. Yeah, Woo! it was a good time. I Picked enjoyed good it. One. Good conversation, too. Yeah. It's not for our housekeeping items. Our next episode coming up is Strange Frequencies by Peter Bebergall. I think that's how you pronounce it. I promise I'll learn by then. Fuck, I have no idea. Uh, looking forward to it. It's going to be really fun. Bits, bit of sci-fi occulty goodness to mix it up with our demons and our moth people. Yeah, going to be looking at some technomancy kind of bullshit. I lo- it's great. It's a good time. And then uh, coming down the line for episode four, we have a very special book coming. Uh, it's a new book that's hit the market. And just because I've said that, you probably already know what it is but I'm going to keep you in suspense anyway. All right, that was our show. Now, if you want to reach out to us in between episodes, you can reach us at noctivagantpodcast at gmail.com. That is our email. And feel free to send book suggestions, uh, corrections about any of the information we repeated on this show, or, you know, like, if we've earned death threats, I guess you can send those. We'll probably delete them. But Please we might- don't. <laughs> 
Yeah, I would prefer no death threats, but any other kind of general yelling. Yeah, general yelling, like glowing compliments. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. If you want to pledge your life and your soul and... Too far again. Half your crops. (laughs) I don't know. We might be able to make profit. I'll take the crops. Yeah, yeah. If you don't want to email us, you can also find us at uh, various social media outlets. Uh, You can locate me on Twitter at Midwest Undead. Yeah, and the, the show itself has its own podcast, at Noctivigant Pod, pod at Noctivigant Pod on Twitter. And I'm at Mix Rory Wicks on Twitter. We're just going to accept that. Rory's better at Twitter than both Nick and I combined. Wouldn't, wouldn't you can also it. find me at, at Bearish Terror, like I said. Go ahead and tweet at me. Yeah, we, uh, we do like interacting. Yeah, so is that our show? Ah, that is our show. Enjoy those midnight roads, everyone. Please don't get lost. Don't fuck Mothman. He's an animal.